Someone on the internet is wrong. <laughs> Absolutely. Welcome to Ruby Rogues, episode number 277. Today on our panel, we have Jessica Kerr. Good morning. Sam Livingston Gray. The pen is only mightier than the sword at distances greater than five feet. That was longer than me actually saying your name. And I'm your host, Saran Yadvarik. And today we have a special guest, Andy Hunt. Andy, you want to introduce yourself? My name's Andy Hunt. Uh, I started off my working life as a programmer, worked for big companies, small ones, became a consultant, author, publisher, was one of the 17 authors of the Agile Manifesto, and have quite a bit to say on the subject. That's quite a resume. So after 17 years, you're not tired of talking about Agile yet? Completely tired of talking about Agile. It was, <laughs> it was boring after the first two years, but... Um, what we find, you know, every day we find that people literally still just don't get it. Um, they look at Agile and they do lots of little tiny waterfalls. Or they say, the literal quote from a client said, I love the benefits you can get from test-driven design. We'd like those benefits, but we don't want to have to do any testing. Okay, well, and, and there you have it. That's, you know, so there's a, there's a lot of... Um, a lot of resistance still in some pockets. There's a lot of misunderstandings. There's a lot of misinformation. Uh, so yeah, it's it's been 15 years since the manifesto in in 2001, and we're still bloody talking about it because folks still don't have as good a handle on it um, as I think they could. So frustration with that, and frustration with the the sort of uh, the the poor, relatively poor adoption of mainstream agile methods. Uh, I figured, well, fine, I'll just start my own. I'll make my own method. Um, you know how the rest of that quote goes. <laughs> we'll make my own. Uh, so I started the uh, Grows Method, um, which is online, as is everything else, at growsmethod.com. And the idea is to, several fold, to get people back to basics. To start off by saying, okay, you know, one of the issues with Agile is like, you painted this picture of this utopian, here's how it works, here's how all the pieces fit together, it's great, we're all going to do this tomorrow, start. And, and of course, it, it, it doesn't work that way. And, and you get a lot of, of um, project teams that fail from trying to sort of do all that. All One thing we found was there's not a lot of information or a good sense of, well, well where do you start? Practices you do first, how do you proceed from there? How do you grow from you know starting from nowhere and growing into becoming an agile practitioner? So that was something that we really wanted to sort of focus on and have this. It's vitally important if you're in, in any modern software uh, engineering enterprise that you can very reliably and consistently build your product and build it and test it and ship it and get it out the door. And yet all these teams that claim to be agile, claim to be doing Scrum, claim to be doing XP, some combination, uh, many of them still don't have continuous integration. They don't have continuous builds. They don't have uh, any kind of you know, automated testing in place. And my theory is that if, if you don't have that very basic level of infrastructure and support, then it doesn't matter if you're talking to customers. It doesn't matter if you've got the best stories in the world. It doesn't matter. Nothing else matters if you can't get the bloody thing out the door. 
So one thing that we really um, try to focus on is to start at that very basic and still undone mechanical level, make sure that you've got automation, make sure you've got continuous builds, continuous testing, that this is all set up and working smoothly. And then you can move on and talk about what it is you're going to build and so on. So uh, you said something fairly early on there about uh, people who wanted to do Agile but didn't want to do all the testing. Uh, and that reminds me of some of the uh, criticisms I've seen of extreme programming over the years, which are that you know XP is this great set of interlocking practices that uh, each of the practices supports one or two or three of the other ones. And so if you take one of those pieces out, you're significantly weakening the, the feedback mechanisms that you get. Um, is that uh, something that you tried to address in growth? Uh, in XP, you were allowed to adopt, you know, well, people wouldn't have adopted XP, would take bits and pieces, but uh, leave out important parts. Is that something you've tried to address with Grows? Um, it is. So the basic, the basic idea behind Grows is that people proceed along a path when they're learning something, a, a growth path. And we took inspiration from the Dreyfus model of skill acquisition that these folks made up back in the 70s, where you go through five stages from novice to expert. And the idea that we're putting forth is, okay, when you first start off, you're a novice. Because as a novice, you don't have experience. That, that's sort of the definition. You're just starting with this. So at the novice level in grows. The focus is on safety and hygiene. Make sure everything is in version control. Make sure the builds are clean and automated. You know, that, that sort of mechanical level. That's the novice level. And frankly, a lot of folks stumble on that, um, even if they've been doing this for a while. But we start with that. The second level, once you've gotten that, that sort of basics out of the way, is kind of checklist-driven. Because again, as, you know, as a beginner... You don't have a lot of experience to guide you, so we provide checklists of do this, make sure that works, make sure you're getting this feedback, make sure you're getting that feedback. And from there, you can move on to sort of a more recipe-based approach where there's more judgment calls and up to a more smooth uh, adoption where it's, it's become unconscious, you're doing it, and you're beginning to innovate and add new things to the practices, which is also something we haven't had sort of at all. Uh, and then finally get to the expert layer um, where you're able to replicate what you've learned and your teachings and help teach others to get there as well. So we've got this, this growth path in place starting off with, you know, make sure this works and make sure you get feedback. So on the question of feedback about, you know, leaving out some practice or another, we're not particularly um, bent that you do things a certain way as long as they get done. So, for instance, one of the ideas is you have to have two pairs of eyes on any bit of code. Now, you can implement that idea in any number of ways. You can do the XP pair programming thing. If that doesn't work for you for whatever reasons, well, then there's various, various levels of, of code reviews you can do from the informal, hey, take a look at this, to the sort of you know Spanish Inquisition under the bare light bulb. <laughs> hey, if that's if that's your thing, it's not my place to to you know to call it one way or the other. If it works for you, so the the focus as always is on getting feedback at every level. 
you know, whether it's from the code, whether it's from the users, whether it's um, your own performance in a meeting, whatever it is, you want to, you know, basically run this continuous loop of do something, do some experiment, do something, get feedback from it, make small adjustments, and, you know, continue and go around and around. So that's, that's the engine that drives it, making it okay for people to experiment with code, to experiment with the methodology itself, because I think it's the height of arrogance to say, here, do this thing, this will work for everyone, trust me. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? Um, and and it, does, it does go wrong. So, you know, people do need some permission to say, well, let's try this and see if this works any better. Now, there's dangers there, of course. You've got one very big risk that what they want to try is just backsliding into um, more plan-based sort of waterfall-ish um, you know, behaviors, and we know that doesn't work. You know, there are people who are like, oh, you know, waterfall's fine. Waterfall can work in a very small number of domains if there's literally like no unknowns and it's all laid out and nothing's going to change. So it's not, it's, you know, very static environment, not dynamic at all. There's no unknowns. It's all laid out. Sure, knock your socks off. Yeah, the, the quip that I remember for that one is uh, that waterfall essentially amounts to an agreement by all parties not to learn anything for the entire duration of the project. Uh, I hadn't heard that, but yeah, I think that that's that's pretty fair. Um, and there are places where that that can happen. Um, you know, it's 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 a big world out there, and you know that's one of the issues that comes up when talking about any methodology is there's just a huge huge, unimaginable variety of software projects. And unfortunately, most of the literature sort of assumes it's a brand new Greenfield project in popular language of your choice. Um, you know, whether, whether it's Java or Ruby on Rails or, or Elixir and Phoenix, whatever the, you know, the hot new thing is. Um, and yeah, there's some of that, but there's folks still out there writing in COBOL. There's folks doing, you know, copy and paste websites in PHP. There's folks doing cutting edge, you know, make your uh, Uber car driverless kind of, you know, nifty stuff uh, and everything in between. So my understanding of Agile and the manifesto is that it wasn't supposed to be so productized and commercialized. It was, it was a way of thinking, it was a philosophy. So seeing how things have turned out, is it fair to say that Groves is what Agile should have been or you wished it was if you could have controlled the process productization of it? Uh, to a degree. Um, it's not entirely fair to say that, well, this is what it should have been in the first place because the manifesto was, was 15 years ago and you know Scrum and XP and Crystal whatever else – None of that popped into existence the year before. They all had, you know, rich histories of, you know, five, ten years, whatever, before that. So I think it's probably better to say, yes, this is partially my view of what Agile should have been at the time, tempered with, and here's the things that we've learned over the last 10, 15 years that, you know, we thought were good ideas, but now we've seen more of how they can be misapplied and what the downsides are. So, can you, you give know, an example with, of that? 
Oh, uh, I, you know, uh, yes, probably. Um, <laughs> give me one second <laughs> and I will come up with a good example here. Cause my, my, you know, the other thing is human memory is really crappy. Mm. Um, and oh my, it's, yes. it's something we don't like, we don't like to talk about, but you know, in, in my book on pragmatic thinking and learning, I make the, the big point that you get these really awesome ideas all the time of that if you pursued and followed up, you'd really, you know, develop something very cool. And it's like, oh, I got this great idea in the shower. I got this great idea while driving. I'll remember that. And, and you don't. You walk through the doorway, your buffer clears, and it's like, what was I thinking about? And, and it's gone. And that's okay. You can't follow up on all of them anyway. We don't have time. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, but I'd like some choice about which ones stick. Because, you know, I probably didn't need that third computer. <laughs> Um, and of course, I can't find what I'm looking at right here. Uh, uh, okay, this kind of works. All right, so the question was uh, for examples of things that we sort of know better now. Um, Scrum's daily stand-up is a very popular uh, agile practice. Uh, it's possibly the most um, widely practiced, widely adopted agile thing and it makes sort of sense you put everyone together uh, all the team members in the room and get them to sort of sync up and be aware of what they're doing um i've been in in multiple multiple companies where the first time they do that it's a real big surprise to find out that your neighbor is working on the same thing that you're working on or that there was a misunderstanding or whatever it might be. So it's a very useful practice. Um, you know, Scrum has, has promoted this. It's widely done. Wonderful, right? Well, no. There are some very major potential drawbacks with implementing that. Um, some of the things we've seen is, you know, folks, I, I've had people say this with a straight face. We do our daily stand-ups on Friday. <laughs> That's amazing. That's impressive. Um, I'm not <laughs> how, making, how do I'm words not work? This up. Um, the only time that the team actually talks to each other is during the daily standup. Um, you can have stakeholders come in and monopolize or dominate the conversation. You can have the uh, manager or, or executive leadership come in and dominate the conversation or worse, begin to micromanage and demand to know, okay, how are you going to fix that problem with the database and want to see your 12 point plan for what you're going to implement it all during this meeting, which now instead of being a 10 or 15 minute quick synchronization for the team has become an hour and a half slog fest death march sort of event. So there's some very, very uh, potential risks to doing a daily stand-up. So for GROWS, we do a couple things. First of all, some of the practices that, that are popular and well-known, we renamed solely to try to get away from some of the baggage. It's the same thing, but hopefully with less baggage associated with it. So in this case, we explicitly call it the team sync. S-Y-N-C. Um, the idea is that this is a practice for the team. It's not for the executive leadership. It's not for the sponsors. It's not for stakeholders. It is for the team as a like a code synchronization point, an informal chance to make sure everyone knows what everyone else is doing, what problems they're facing, and what value there is in what they're doing. Now, 
as, as Scrum says, the manager's job is to listen and take note of what's in their way and help clear obstacles. So that's what it's supposed to be. Now, what we do, so on the growth site, what we do is we list out for, for any practice, we list out what the pain points are, why you should be doing this in the first place, what the benefits are. There's an adoption experiment that says, okay, if you want to do this, here's what you try and here's the kind of feedback you should expect from it. But the most important part, I think, for any practice is enumerating the warning signs. You know, things like, like for the stand-up meeting, people come in and say, okay, I'm still working on XYZ. I don't care. That's not useful. Tell me what is working. Tell me what you're stuck on. I'm still working on X is a huge warning sign. It's not doing the practice correctly. Um, people start sitting down. The meeting starts getting longer. Okay, again, you're, you're violating the spirit of the thing. If there's more that needs to be discussed, and there always is, the idea is to schedule other get-togethers as needed, not to impact this synchronization um, event. But the best part, I think, from all the practices that we've, we've started to put up on the GROW site is a section called How to Fail Spectacularly. And when we first did this, I actually had named it Spectacularly Stupid Ideas, which, which I thought was you know, kind of tongue-in-cheek, but, but kind of funny. And some of our early uh, uh, beta um, readers came and looked, and th this one guy was like, guys, I love what you're doing. You know, th this is wonderful information. This is really helpful. This, this clarifies a lot of things for me. However, I want to show this to my management, and I can't show them your site because you've got this section called, you know, spectacularly stupid ideas, which basically outline our business plan. <laughs> <laughs> That's Ouch. Awesome. <laughs> so, so I renamed it <laughs> How to Fail Spectacularly. Um, and, and, this is, this <laughs> is the and that made them feel better, better right? It's, right? Well, it takes the stupid word out of it. And it's, it's, okay. I'm hoping it's, it's more cautionary. It's how to fail. So, you know, mm -hmm. a reasoned person will look at this and be like, oh, so these things here that we're doing, probably we oughtn't be doing this. Failure's trendy now. Failure's That's cool. True. Everybody, Everybody needs to want to, to fail. fail. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, nope. that, we've got that ironed down. We, we, we've got that nailed. Um, yeah, yeah. I have a sticker on uh, one of my devices that says, move slow and make things. That's, and that's, it's honestly, that's so all there funny. is to it. Um, but there's so much that gets in our way of doing that. Um, and, you know, some of it is, is fairly far out of our, out of our hands and out of our control. Um, a lot of reasons that it looks like executives act, act weird or don't do the right thing for software or try to screw us has nothing to do with them, but they're forced to do that because of accounting principles and accounting rules or, you know, legal requirements or, you know, these things that are so far removed from our day-to-day -day experience, but that's the world you have to deal with. Um, so one of the things that struck me as a, it, it's an interesting trade-off, right? So all of engineering is trade-offs. You know, everything is, you, you can do this or that. You can't have both. So you do this at that expense, however it goes. Um, when XP first started getting popular, they made the very conscious decision, I think, that it should be a bottom-up um, kind of a movement. It should be adopted by developers, be grassroots, and work its way up into the organization. And 
I think that was probably the correct decision at the time. But as with all trade-offs, you've got a situation now where you've got a lot of developers on board with it and not nearly as many executives or managers who are on board with it or understand it. So we run into very frequent problems where the developers know the right thing to do and can't. They're not allowed. So one of the things that we're trying to do to change that is to make it very explicit that the rest of the organization is part of the methodology. We have practices for executives. We have practices for users. Right? We keep saying, well, we want user involvement. We want them to sit in and you know, watch our demos and give us feedback. Dynamite, have we told them how? <laughs> have we taught them? Have we, have we laid out our expectations of what sort of criticism, what kind of critique that we want to accept for them sitting in and, and watching our product? No. We plop it in front of them and say, what do you think? They're like, looks great. Or can you make it pink? Um, or mauve or whatever. So we have this expectation that the rest of the organization will, will follow along with us, but we haven't really done anything serious to kind of uh, get their involvement. So one of the big things behind GROWS is that it is all inclusive. Um, we've got practices for the users. We've got practices for the executives. Um, and the executive angle, I think, is particularly important because – you know, as as an executive, I mean, one of one of my many hats. I'm the publisher at Pragmatic Bookshelf, and you know, I am running that company, and I know full well what it's like to sit on the other side of the chair from a developer, um, and have that end of the argument and not be in in the developer's chair. I mean, I've been in both, and it's it's fascinating to see how your your vision changes from the other side of the table. So. As an executive, you know, I want to know what's going on to a point. I sure as hell don't want the details. I would like some, some vague comfort level of, are you going to make it on time? And if you're not, when are you going to make it by? And that's kind of all I care about. I'd like to know that as an executive. Um, so we have practices in place that let executives get the level of information that's appropriate to them get the transparency through to the team without encouraging micromanagement or over-involvement or panic, um, but to get them the information they want and the expectation that we'll get from the executive leadership something like a coherent vision so we know what in the hell it is we're building and, more importantly, why. What's it supposed to do? What are we trying to accomplish here? Um, and that's where... You know, an awful lot of folks fall down trying to communicate the organization's purpose. They get bogged down in, well, well we've got a mission statement here. We, we're a customer-focused, you know, blah, blah. And, and it just starts spewing, you know, Google AdWords at you. Uh, and there's no, no actual meaning there. So that's, that's something we really try hard to avoid um, is the sort of meaningless mission statement and actually get get them something you know useful, something we can work with. Um, my, I've got there's a great example on the site of you know, a bad mission statement where it says you know if you've got a content free, unactionable vision such as we're a customer centric organization focused on actualizing best of breed cross platform enterprise enterprise FaceTime ideation. <laughs> <laughs> 
Rocking. All right. So does that mean it should be real time or batch, or should it be? You know, <laughs> how many servers are we going to need? Why? Well, you know, there's there's nothing. Um, and you see a lot of these things with you know we want better quality or faster delivery. Yeah, I'd like to win the lottery. So what? That, that's not useful. So we try to emphasize useful um, vision and goals from the executives, and in return, they get the feedback they need. And with everyone included in the process, hopefully everyone will be happier. I have one thing to uh, toss our listeners as uh, just a momentary amusement. The, uh, the Ruby Faker gem contains uh, some code to generate some of those uh, lovely mission statements. Uh, it's the fakercompany.bs model, which they're... <laughs> <laughs> awesome. The documentation has it uh, returning something like empower one-to-one web readiness. Uh, and I'll drop that in the show notes. But, um, so yeah, it sounds like, um, uh, so this reminds me actually of some of the critiques that Sarah May has had of the solid principles, which are that they're great at describing um, what code should look like uh that is easy to change, uh, but they don't really say very much about how to get there. And it sounds like that's uh, that same angle of how to get there is something that you've really put a lot of thought into with Grows. Is that uh, is that accurate? I, I think that's fair. Um, and and it's interesting. You know, put a lot of thought into is, is sort of relative. Um, you know, this started as kind of <laughs> off the cuff kind of thing. It's like, well, what what actually what actually happened was I had this one um, uh, person I was talking to who was really trying to do the right thing, really trying to be agile, really trying to experiment with what they had and find their way through and wasn't allowed to because it wasn't Scrum, it wasn't XP, it wasn't a recognized method. So it's like, fine, now you've got a recognized method. Look, there's a website, there's going to be a book, it's real, knock your socks off. Um, but the important, uh, the, the idea of how to get through it is... You've got to try it first. You know, a prototype is worth a thousand meetings, right? Um, and that's that's how we do stuff. You know, we play with code to learn how it works. We have to try it. We have to see it. We want to put our code in front of users to see if that's what they were thinking. You know, our written uh, and oral communication skills are, are pretty poor as such things go. You just really need to see it. So... Architecturally, one of the big things that we, we push is the idea of tracer bullet development, which has been called you know, a thin skeleton, a thin red line, um, these various other names. We put this forth um, back in the, the Pragmatic Programmer book uh, that Dave Thomas and I wrote back at the <clears throat> turn of the century. Um, but the idea that you know, your very first version of your code is hello world. It's a thin slice, but it goes all the way through the application. Web front end, through to the database, through whatever middleware you got in the middle, all of that. And you start with that very thin slice and, and add to it with the notion that you're doing this because you want constant feedback. It's all about feedback. So back to your original question, I pitched out my very first earliest ideas of Grows to start getting feedback on it. Um, and at a certain point after, after starting very early on, uh, my friend Jared Richardson uh, joined me. Uh, he's got a lot of clients in the area, and he's seen a lot of um, <laughs> really interesting things uh, that we've, we've been able to, to capture. 
lecture on about how people do things wrong. Um, so we started working on it together. And again, with this idea of, well, we don't know where this is headed, particularly. You know, I didn't wake up one morning and have this grand vision of this shall be the method to end all methods. <laughs> the whole idea of the method is we don't know, but we can try and figure it out. So you put something out there, you get some feedback, you make a small adjustment, rinse and repeat. And that's what we preach with Grows, and that's how we're developing Grows. We put stuff out there, we get feedback from people, we tweak it. So one of the things that I really liked when I was looking at the website and just learning more about this is that there are lots of tools. You mentioned the Tracer Bullet development, the, there's practices by stage. There are all these diagrams and stages and just very clearly laid out structures on how to do this sort of thing. And it made me wonder how much of this is research. You mentioned, you know, getting feedback from people and saying, you know, how well does this work and incorporating that in, but how, how empirical is this really? And can something like this be very empirical? It's a good question. Um, much of what we have here is information or ideas or approaches that have been borne out from experience. So somebody had an idea once and said, hey, this, is, this might work, let's try it. And over the years, it's either worked or it's been modified or it's been forgotten. So we see things where, well, that would have worked, but here's a tweak that makes it actually work better. So much of this is born from our personal experience, experience from you know, our, our friends in the community, people that we know, people that we follow, and you know, for the most part is what's happening out in the world. Um, but interestingly, so one of the problems with, the, with uh, the mainstream agile methods is they've been fairly stagnant. Um, if you look at you know, Scrum or XP, they themselves are actually not very agile. They haven't changed. They haven't adapted. You know, a little. You know, some some tweaks here and there, and some some better discussions and descriptions. But you know, the fundamental practices haven't changed. They're the same, and that strikes me as as probably not a good, not a healthy thing. You know, we're supposed to inspect and adapt, and they haven't adapted. So one of the things we put on each of the practices is its application. And there's three categories at present. A practice that we recommend can be critical, it could be helpful, or it could be experimental. So if it's critical, that's something like version control. You have to have it. I don't care if you use Git. I don't care if you use Subversion or Mercurial or you know anything that's not Outlook. I literally, we knew people once who used Microsoft Outlook as version control, and they mailed the code to each other at the end of the day. Wow. I can't make these things up. Um, so, you know, something at that level, it's marked as critical. It's like, literally, just do it. This is really not up for discussion. You, you, you have to do this. Um, helpful is something like um, setting team interruption protocols. You know, where do you strike the balance between having the team getting pinged and interrupted with bugs and crises all the time versus walling them off where they don't talk to anybody? You know, there's advantages, and you, you have to have a team that's responsive, but you also have to have quiet time so you can think and get things done. How do you draw the balance? You know, and some teams will say, well, Tuesdays, 
we can't be interrupted. We won't, we won't respond to email. You know, we won't respond to phone calls Tuesdays and Thursdays or every day from one to four or whatever it might be. So that's a helpful level practice. You know, it's not mandatory, but it's something that's going to come up and, you know, it's something you need to address. And it, I don't really care how you address it. You can have a, a floater or a bug catcher, as, as Sam notices here. You can pick uh, half days during the week or whole days. I don't care, as long as everyone agrees to it. And that's why it's described as a protocol. It's like, all right, here's the rules of engagement. This is what we're going to do. So that's the helpful level. Then the third category is the experimental level. And that's the, well, this is a nifty idea. Maybe we've done some research on it. Maybe a few folks have tried it, but it's not really proven out in the world yet. It's, it's an interesting idea. Somebody should try it. We should see what happens. So one of the goals behind this is to try to get folks to come up with new ways of doing things, to try to innovate, to try to get new and different practices um, into the, the Agile world. And that's one of the things back at the 10-year uh, uh, anniversary of the manifesto. One of the uh, popular interviewer questions was, you know, what do you, what do you see that's, that's different uh, or that didn't turn out the way you expected from when you all wrote the manifesto in the first place? And back when uh, the manifesto was written, the common thought going around the table was – Really, everyone in their dog was going to come out with their own agile method. You know, here's the principles sort of behind it. Everyone's going to come up with different practices. You know, every consultant, every group's going to come up with new practices that honor these principles, but have their own, you know, sort of unique take on it. And that never really happened. You know, it became scrum and a little bit of XP. And if you look at the some of the uh, the, the vendor polls. Um, and surveys that go out there, you know, some astonishing percentage, 70, 80% of the world, if you ask them what is Agile, they'll say it's Scrum. And, and that's really all they know, you know, that's sort of the end of the question. So we missed out on the opportunities to innovate and to add new practices to find out new and better ways of doing things, which are out there. I mean, the technology that we work with on a day-to-day -day basis is vastly different from 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 25 years ago. And we don't really take advantage of that as much as we could or should. So I think there's plenty of room for innovation there, and I'd like to see it. So we have, hopefully, we'll have mechanisms in place to begin to foster that. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on Ruby developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average Ruby developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Ruby Rogues Podcast. Andy, it sounds like 
you're not prescribing practices. We know what will work for everyone, but you are enumerating things that you know don't work. That's true. Um, and we, we know, we certainly know things that don't work. We know ways that popular practices can go sideways and cause trouble for you. We try, when we're prescriptive, we try to prescribe what it is you need to accomplish and not be, and you have to do it this way. Um, two eyes on code, I think, is a good example. You've got to have more than one person look at a piece of code before it gets it gets into the pipeline. Whether you do that by code reviews, by pair programming, by whatever else, okay, that's that's your call. And so here's the trade-offs for those. But the choice is yours. So you're giving people the what and the why, but not micromanaging their how. Trying not to. And I mean, well, you know, we certainly give suggestions. You know, it's like, well, you know, Scrum says do this or, you know, whatever, and this this is popular. And here's the drawbacks and benefits of that. But it's more important that people realize that the whole point of the game is feedback. Uh, you had mentioned earlier in this, this podcast uh, some resistance to, to unit testing or resistance to automated testing. And we try to combat that by pointing out that that is your code feedback. That's the level of feedback that says that this code actually does something akin to what you thought it did which often can be a surprise, <laughs> obviously. It's also damage control um, in case of regressions, right? But Exactly, absolutely. I mean, the you know we used to call it the safety net. It's like you have to have that level of, of safety net for the feedback that it generates. Um, and, you know, the overall, you know, the sort of, I don't know, baked-in corporate idea that you only get feedback at the end mm-hmm. is disastrous. And and it's not even just our industry. I mean, look at the, uh, uh, the movies. Motion picture industry, I think, is a really interesting sort of example. Um, you know, as a motion picture exec, I would love to say I want a guaranteed method to produce a great script. The same way we say, well, I want a guaranteed method to produce great software. It's the same question, and it's not that easy. You know, you look at uh, look at the recent spate of uh, DC superhero movies where they fell on their face, um, largely according to reviewers and according to the box office. And you have to wonder. Uh, there, there were stories about um, Suicide Squad that just came out this summer of 2016, where the tale says that they had the film almost shot, almost in the can. Finally, decided to check with users, show it to test audiences, and they didn't like it. They wanted it to be more like the trailer that they'd seen, and they didn't like how the movie turned out. So there was a frantic and expensive effort at the end to recut it, reshoot scenes, try to get it to what the users said they wanted. And the results apparently was a kind of Frankenstein-esque vivisected nightmare where it was it just lacked cohesion at that point. You just had these bits and pieces spliced in, and it didn't really satisfy anyone. Um, and you've got people here gambling, what, $200, $300 million for a, a blockbuster movie these days? And they they running into the exact same problems uh, you run into in software. It's a creative, intellectual endeavor, and there's no way to know up front that, yes, that's the right script. That's going to resonate with audiences. That's going to be, you know, people will like it versus, you know, yes, this is the right project. These are the right features. This is the right architecture. These are the right design decisions. We don't know. 
And really, the only way forward is to check, to have feedback. Check with the users, check via your unit tests, check, 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 twi you know, tweak a little, check again. It's really the only way through for this sort of complex and chaotic domains. Sometimes I think that companies or people in companies don't really want those sort of, how do we know this is working checks? Because then they would know that it isn't. And their actual check of, is this is working? Their actual that, check of, is this working? Is, am I still getting my paycheck? That, that is that is absolutely true. Um, and, and in fact, the uh, there's a popular thing about um, uh, burn up versus burn down charts. We recommend a burn down chart because it shows you across the top what your scope is. So when scope increases, the top line of the chart goes up. I thought that was a got, burn up chart. I, I made you know left and rights, whatever. The one that goes <laughs> that way. Um, you know, you want to show scope creep and show that line on the top rising as as it goes. Now it makes it harder to hit. No kidding. But we've had people say, oh, we can't do that because that will make the, the, the developers depressed seeing that we keep moving the target. <laughs> like they don't know. <laughs> well, it's like, and what are you going to do when they do find out? Somebody um, was talking to me about that. For the listeners, a burn down chart shows how much work you have left to do. And you hope that that like, goes down. A burn up chart shows how much work has been done and also the target, how much work we expect to get done before we're finished. And so you can see both lines going up, that we are getting stuff done, and the goal is moving farther away from us all the time. <laughs> and the, the irony is, that is the sort of thing that when you show that to executives and show that, okay, by adding these things, you're going to now miss your date by this far, it's like, oh, and suddenly they have enlightenment. Um, <laughs> Assuming that they're know, the sort of executive that will take that feedback, yeah, which, which happens, and and see, then you run into you know, I think one of the biggest problems with with uh, computer science with software development is that we seem to run into a lot of human limitations a lot faster than other industries might, and that's probably reasonable considering that you know as we move out of the uh, the industrial age into the information age we're running into more basic cognitive limitations of, of the species. So one of the big ones um, that, that comes up is this need for closure. It is a hardwired cognitive bias that most people, many people, would much rather have the wrong number in the box than to leave it open and not know the answer. So I need to know when this is going to ship. Well, June 1st. I made that up. It's not going to happen. That's a complete BS number. Wonderful, but I needed a number. I have to have a number. But it's wrong. That's okay. I have to have it. That, that's a very real cognitive bias mm -hmm. that a lot of people are suspect to. And unfortunately, that's the biggest, I think, hindrance to uh, an agile approach is you got to get over that. You have to be comfortable with uncertainty. You have to you have know to, what you don't know because have, the emptiness absolutely. of that box is information. And you have to trust mm -hmm. the people that you work with. Absolutely. And you, you have to be comfortable with the unsolved problem. It has to be, well, you know, how, how are you going to do this? How are you going to fix this? We don't know yet. We're, re we're researching it. We're looking into it. We're running experiments. 
We're getting data. We'll figure it out, but we don't know. And in, unfortunately, in many environments, that's really just not acceptable. There's a lot of places where you simply are not allowed to say, I don't know. And I think that that's one of the big hindrances to um, agile adoption in general is that sort of, of culture of demanding, you know, sort of perfect knowledge up front. I mean, it's a fantasy. It's unrealistic, but it's a very popular fantasy. I've heard that in academia, part of the culture is that, at least in, in history, uh, that if you're asked a question, you need to know the answer. <laughs> and, and that like affects your reputation. You should know things. Whereas in, at least where I work, being able to say, oh gosh, I don't know, let's find out, increases your status a lot more than, it's blah, 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 blah. Right, right. And, and that's, that's exactly it. Unfortunately, there is a, a very prevalent corporate culture that tends towards, towards the first and, and, and not the second. And it, it absolutely should be, let's find out, or here's what we're going to do to find out, as opposed to, oh, it's X. Um, you know, and unfortunately, I mean, you know, not to get into politics, but you absolutely see this with politicians as well. It's, it's not politically popular to say, well, we don't know, you know, we need to get, we need to study that. We need to get some data on that. It's much more popular to say, shoot them all, lock them all up, you know, whatever the, the, the issue might be to come up with something that sounds decisive, um, even if it's the wrong answer. Why is it called GROWS in all caps? <laughs> with a TM. Let's not forget the with TM. The TM. That's been bothering me for a long time. <laughs> Why is it called that? So, well, two, two questions in there. Um, GROWS was initially going to be an acronym. And because I wanted the idea of, of growth as a central metaphor because code grows. You grow code. You start with the thin tracer bullet approach you grow code as you go along. You don't build. You know, it's it's much more organic um, process. And similarly, you cannot ignore the fact that you've got to grow team skills as well. You've got to grow the team's skill at working with each other. You've got to grow individuals' technical um, acumen as they go along. These are very important things that you know um, regular methodologies sort of leave out, but assume. Well, of course, this is something you, you would do, you know, in a reasonable company, and that's a dangerous assumption. So I wanted to emphasize the aspect of growth. We came up with um, a couple different acronyms for it, you know, growing real-world-oriented software kind of things, but I didn't actually really like any of those, so we abandoned that, and it's, it's just grows. Um, it doesn't stand for anything. Um, the trademark... Uh, on the other hand, was very deliberate. Seeing how other methods and other ideas have been used and abused, we wanted to try to avoid that same fate. So claiming grows as a trademark gives us some measure of protection from at least companies misusing the name and saying, oh, this is this is grow this is grow's method, and it turns out it's just waterfall or you know some other non-agile, non-viable uh, approach. Um, so it's mostly just to try to prevent dilution um, or confusion and try to keep the, the name at least to represent what we want it to represent. 
Now, so you're perfectly free. Calls. Everything on the website is free. You're perfectly welcome to take these ideas, do something else with them, and call it something else. That's fine. But if you're going to call it this, then you need to play by, um, by our, uh, our rules, our philosophies. What was that, Jessica? Oh, so we don't get grossed or fall? <laughs> <laughs> I love the name Waterfall because it just fits so well because at the mm-hmm. end you get a big crash. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I loved it. Uh, so there, was some, there was some conference a couple of years ago. I, I, I've got the T-shirt somewhere where it has the cartoon – of the person in the, the the kayak or the canoe halfway down the waterfall saying, so far, so good. <laughs> um, and, you know, I mean, yeah, exactly that. You know, just like, like the big blockbusters that don't find out until they burn through 300 million, you know, I'd like to know, you know, especially as a business owner, I want to know in the first couple days, at the first week, if this is viable or not. I want to keep knowing that, we're on target or we're, we're hitting the rails. We're, we're not going to make it. Um, so so I, I, I think it's almost, I would almost say that it's, it's professional incompetence or, or um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, some, something legally damaging to do waterfall in this day and age. Hmm. Hmm. While we're on the topic of the name, uh, I like the name Grows because it really sounds like it has scaling built right in. <laughs> oh, no. It does. It absolutely does. Scaling is built right in. And you want to know the secret to scaling? Sure Growing. you do. The secret to scaling is to, is to not scale up the mess. <laughs> <laughs> that is really what it comes down to. And, and again, this is, this is where you know, folks trip up. They they're like, well, we we you know we're enterprise. So first of all, as soon as somebody uses the word enterprise, you know, you're in kind of a lot of trouble. It's probably not gonna work. Um what regardless, whether it's a methodology or technology, as soon as it gets all enterprisey, ah, that's that's a kind of a uh, kind of a red flag. Um what happens is you've got a company that has, you know, tons of bugs, maybe terrible releases, a terrible release history. Um, they can't quite finish what they're doing. The teams don't like each other. They're toxic. They don't have solid technical practices. They don't have any kind of, of steady rhythm or cadence. The, the vision is unclear. And now they want to scale. So, great. Now you get all of that and you've multiplied it a thousand times. So, you know, what were annoyances for just a few teams are now impediments. What were impediments are now problems. And whatever were problems are now full-scale disasters because you've scaled up gunk that didn't work well. <laughs> so how do you know when you're good enough to start scaling up? Well, that's a good question. We're, we're actually working – I'm literally working on that material as we speak. This, this, this call interrupted the chapter I was writing. <laughs> um, but the, the, the idea is simple enough that you have to have it working in the small first. You know, you have to have individual teams that ship on a reliable cadence, on time. You know, you know their speed. And there's an interesting thing there, too. We, we really try to push the idea that team velocity is a constant. That, you know, any given team is as fast as they are. And that's how fast they go. So if you want to know when they're going to be done, you know, you plot out how many features they've completed over, you know, a few buckets of time. And you draw a line. 
linear linear interpolation. That that's how long it's going to take. And it's like, well, we want it to be faster. Well, I'd like to win the lottery too, but you know, wish and don't make it so. It doesn't go <laughs> up and to the right. <laughs> you know, it's it is what it is. So you know the relative speed of your many teams. You know that they either ship reliably or don't. You know that they ship crap or don't. Um, and from there, it's really then just a matter of, okay, what's the best way to synchronize communication among N teams? Do you do a, a, a hierarchical kind of reduction thing like a scrum of scrums? Do you do a, like a network model? Do you do this? Do you do that? That's a separate question. That's just a matter of how do you coordinate visibility and transparency amongst these teams through to the executive layer with a large number of teams. That's a simpler and less emotional problem to nothing works and we can't get stuff out the door. Yeah, speaking of scaling, I was uh, as I was reading through the Grows website, I was struck by uh, some parallels with uh, Jim Shore and Diana Larson's uh, Agile Fluency model, um, which is another way of sort of putting putting stages onto things and saying, okay, so at, at first maybe you're not going to deliver much very well, and then you know, as you get, as you master that, then you can start working on this next thing. Um, I was wondering if uh, if that had informed grows at all, or vice versa, or what? Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, I I I, I know those folks. Um, I have not intimate with their works. I, I don't think I've actually read it. Um, uh, Diane is one of our authors. Um, uh, I've, I've met Shore a few times. Nice folks. I'm, I'm sure what they're doing is is spot on. But I'm not particularly familiar with it. Um, but I like the idea of you know starting starting simply and working your way up because I think that's one of the the big mistakes that gets made so often is okay here's this thing we're we're agile tomorrow and bang yeah. you know just kind of you know bang and crash I suppose is more <laughs> more accurate so big bang you know, I'm not familiar with it but it sounds it sounds like a right idea in the right direction and I you know. I would like to see more of that. Um, you know, it's in a perfect world. I don't want to have to be writing this grows stuff or, or or talking about it or speaking about it or giving workshops, all of which I do. Um, I'd rather not be doing any of that. There, there's far more interesting stuff out there, but there's such widespread um, misunderstanding and misapplication. I really felt compelled. It's like, okay, this. You know, this is this is not a solved problem yet. Yes, we know the answers, but not, you know, within the community, we know the answers. We know the right way to do things, but that hasn't really um, gotten out into the world as well as it needs to. And yes, as Sam just typed in, someone on the internet is wrong. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Well, cool. Thank you. Uh, for our listeners, I did uh, drop a couple of links about Agile Fluency into the show notes if you're curious about that. Uh, it's some interesting stuff. Jessica? I'm a little Saran? skeptical. I'm a little skeptical. Andy said, we have the answers. We know how to do this. <laughs> we have some answers. <laughs> we at least know some things not to do. And that's, that stuff that's definitely way. hasn't made it out into the community yet. <laughs> That, that that's that's definitely definitely um and i should i should probably rephrase it i we don't have all the answers yeah you know, i wish we did we have some um yeah i wish we had more we do have some answers but we're not even listening to the answers we do have 
And we kind of need to get past that because the harder questions are coming. Um, you know, we're sitting here pissing around with trying to figure out how to just write simple code. What's going to happen when you've got uh, an AI assist writing the code for you? And when your, t your job as a programmer is to tell the AI what you want coded, and it's down there writing the, the stupid low-level Java uh, or JavaScript or PHP or Rails or Elixir or whatnot, and your job is to guide the AI into writing the, the correct code, that's a very different world. And I would not be at all surprised if that is the world in 10 years' time. Pick a number. I would really like to believe that. I, I've seen a number of like visual programming models that have tried to sell that same vision, and it, it, it comes down to they, specifying the problem is programming. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. That's why the only, the only way I think that, that scenario works is if you get that sort of breakthrough in generalized AI where it is actually learning from you and knows you know, the, the peculiarities of when you say, I want this over there, I want this to work this way, what that actually means. So what do you see as the future of growth? What do you hope it accomplishes? Where do you see it going? My, my fondest hope for it, um, once we get sort of the, the first version um, kind of out there, and it's, it's maybe three-quarters complete, currently, maybe 60%, somewhere in there. Once we kind of get the, the first full idea sketched out, um, we're going to open it up for much more community involvement. I want to see people out there trying things. I want to see them trying new approaches. I want them writing them up and sending them in. We've got a couple folks doing this already, saying, hey, this is cool, and we've, we've done this thing, and it worked really well. I want to hear about that. I want to publicize that. I want other people to try it. I want to get their feedback. Uh, ultimately, I want to move the industry forward because we've got far more interesting problems ahead of us. This ain't one of them. <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. And so with that, shall we move on to some picks? Works for me. I'm going to yes. take that as a yes. Okay. <laughs> Jessica, you want to go first? I'm going to pick camping in the front yard. Because my eight-year-old did that last night in a tent, and it was really cute. And is that's that safe? Today. Is that safe? Like, are there <laughs> bugs and stuff? <laughs> there are indeed bugs. She killed at least one bloody mosquito. Yeah, how, how did <gasps> oh you get goodness. the bed out onto the front lawn? <laughs> yeah. She dragged mm -hmm. the sleeping bag out there all by herself with great enthusiasm. Wow. <laughs> Wait, did she sleep? I'm sorry, I'm very interested in this. I don't really know how children work, so this is a fascinating topic. Did she? <laughs> did she? Did she do it by herself? Like she just slept outside on her own? Um. Well, actually, we have a house guest at the moment, and okay. um, so she slept out there with an adult. Okay. Wow. That's a great pick. Thanks, Jessica. <laughs> Sam, you want to go next? Uh, sure. Uh, speaking of children and how they work, um, a couple of weeks ago uh, we went on vacation, and as part of the vacation, we went uh, on one day we went uh, in San Francisco to the California Academy of Sciences, and then the very next day we went to the Exploratorium. Uh, so I'm going to pick both of those. They're both excellent, excellent museums. Uh, the Cal Academy of Sciences is uh, more an illustration of like what you can do when you put a lot of money into a few exhibits. Um, they've got some just absolutely stunning uh, aquariums and this big uh, giant dome inside their building. That it's got um, a sort of uh, 
warm rainforest thing with butterflies butterflies flying around in there and it's really cool and then sort of at the other end of the scale the exploratorium is is uh, what happens when you take uh, all of your money and you turn it into a bunch of little interactive experiments and then spread them all throughout a uh, large building it's just like you can't walk five feet without going oh what's that I gotta play with that <laughs> um, so they're both absolutely wonderful I mean personally if it you know if it were me with one day, I'd go to the Exploratorium, but they're both worth checking out. Uh, so that's my picks. Nice. So I have I have a bunch of picks. This is my first show back, so I'm very excited. Okay, number one is this book called Shoe Dog, which is the story of, it's a memoir by Phil Knight, who's the creator of Nike. And I read a bunch of businessy books and profiles and that kind of thing. But um, no, Sam, I'm not going to pace myself. I'm super excited. Okay. <laughs> So, <laughs> so this book by uh, Phil Knight is this awesome story of how he created Nike. And what I loved about it is usually when I read business books, it's all, oh, everything was terrible. And then now I'm the greatest person ever. And it's, you know, which is fine if you've made a, a big empire, good for you. But this story is basically Phil kind of talking through all the hurdles and the struggles and the down points at each, at each level. And every time he tells a story, I think to myself, if this happened to me, I would just quit. I would quit right now, and there just wouldn't be a Nike. And it's just really, really motivational and inspirational uh, and just a good reminder as we struggle with our own software problems and product problems uh, that Phil Knight has probably been through way worse than anything we've experienced. So that's one. Uh, the second is this thing that someone gave me called espresso pillows, which are just as magical as they sound. Uh, They're from Trader Joe's. They're these little espresso bits that are covered in toffee and chocolate. And they are so freaking good. They're just absolutely delicious. Uh, I basically finished the can in two days, which is probably not safe. But they're really good. And I highly recommend them. And then uh, next is a talk that... Uh, I saw at DjangoCon, which I thought was absolutely incredible. Uh, it's called it "Is Darkest Before the Dawn," and it was um, a talk by Tim Allen, who's a, a developer, and basically going through his struggles with alcoholism. And it was incredibly vulnerable and powerful, and deeply personal, but also just made everyone in the audience really think about our culture and how we approach um, alcohol and, and how that's you know a big part of tech culture. Uh, for better and for worse. And it's, it's just a really, really insightful, touching story. So I highly recommend that you all watch that. It's on YouTube now. And my very last pick uh, is uh, our own Ruby Book Club podcast that I'm doing with Nadia Odenayo, who was actually a guest, I think, a few weeks back. And we're doing a podcast that we've been doing for the past four months now. And we read an hour of a Ruby book each week and then talk about it together. And it's an awesome way to just kind of focus on learning in small steps. And we recently started 99 Bottles of OOP, which is by Sandy Metz and Katrina Owen. So if you're interested in reading that book and in getting through it and being consistent about it, we'd love for you to join us in our reading journey. Okay, Andy, you're up next. All right. Well, my, my pick for the readers is you, the reader. Invest in yourself. I love that Mark Twain quote that's something about those who don't read good books have no advantage over those who can't, um, which I think is a very powerful idea. It's so easy to kind of uh, get caught up in work, 
in our development, in uh, families, everything else, and not invest in reading any of the, the fine books you just mentioned, uh, in reading tech books, in reading business books, psychology, history, whatever it might be. And yeah, you need all of that. Um, you know, read, read constantly. Uh, I, I say that I say it in part as a publisher because I want you to read our books at pragprog.com. But really, just read anything. Read not the net. Read actual books uh, that people have put care uh, and time into. Um, so, in terms of uh, URLs and uh, places to pitch uh, for books to read, come to pragprog.com. For more information on the Grows Method, go to growsmethod.com. I'm on Twitter at Pragmatic Andy. Um, my personal website is toolshed.com. has some more information on me and, and other links, articles, um, other things to read. That's all I've got for today. Thank you all so much for having me. Thanks, Andy. Awesome. This was fun. And I was going to ask you where we can follow you and how we can learn about you, but you did all that too. So proactive. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Andy. Oh, no Sam, problem. Sam, did you want to throw in an, an extra pick? Uh, not a pick as such, but I did want to let our listeners know, since you mentioned 99 bottles of OOP, uh, we are scheduled, actually we have scheduled uh, uh, our next book club episode, uh, which is going to be, we're going to record in late October and it'll come out in November. Uh, it's going to be about 99 bottles of OOP, and uh, I'm really looking forward to that. So if anybody wants to buy the book and nice. uh, get ahead. You've got two chances. One is listening to Saran and Nadia, and the other is procrastinating and listening to us. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much, Andy, for being on the show. That's all we got. All right. Thank you all for having me. Goodbye. Bye-bye.